Uh, this episode of KSC Talks will focus on changes to global trade as a result of the war and of sanctions. Uh, our goal is to address the question of uh, if and how trade relationships are changing now and what this means for Russia, as well as Russia's past and current trading partners. As we delve into the complexities of this theme, it is my pleasure to introduce our distinguished guest today, Dr. Janis Kruger, Senior Associate at SWP in Berlin. Uh, his extensive experience and expertise will bring uh, valuable insights to our discussion. Uh, together, we will examine Russia's changing role in global trade, explore the Russia-China relationship in more detail, and also discuss related issues such as the ruble's depreciation in recent months and changes to the global financial architecture. Without further ado, let's uh, begin. Welcome, Yanis. Thank you for joining us and uh, uh, here on KSC Talks, and I'm looking forward to the conversation. Thank you very much, Ben. I've been looking forward to this uh, for a long time, and um, I just wanted to start by also saying thank you to what you are doing at the KSC Institute. It's really important for us to understand what's going on in Russian trade, and um, I think that without the studies that you are working on and that you're releasing, yeah, it would all be a bit less clear uh, what exactly is happening. Thank you very much for that. So I'm happy to be here. Thank you for, for, the, for the praise. Um, now, this is obviously a rather complex uh, topic of conversation. So maybe you could uh, start us off by uh, outlining in some broad strokes uh, how trade patterns have changed with regard to Russia since the start of the full-scale invasion in February of 2022 and since the imposition of uh, sanctions. And then from there, we can go uh, into more detail with uh, some of these issues. Sure. Um, so I think actually, if we look at the, the trade patterns in Russia um, of last year, um, I think it makes even sense to start a little bit earlier. Um, because um, I checked what the actually the, the record month for Russian exports all time uh, was and, and I, I realized it was December of 2021. So although we had a lot of exports from Russia last year, it was a record year, actually the most um, lucrative month was uh, two months before the war. And um, this, I guess, tells you two things. One thing is that um, a lot of what we have been seeing is also dependent on what's happening in the world at the same time. So we had the recovery from COVID and this was driving up commodity prices and Russia was already benefiting from that before. And it was a huge boon to, to Russia in this last sanctions year. Uh, and also, um, well, it tells us that, um, that there was some, um, of course, limitations already on Russian gas exports and Russia managed to drive up some prices by its own actions and by its own, um, the, the risk that it brought to, to global trade. Um, it, it benefited from that as well. So that was that was the story before the start of the war and um, or the start of the full invasion. And if you look um, at what happened afterwards, I would say there are like, three different um, uh, stages of, of the development. So I, I think there was a first stage of chaos where we saw a huge disruption of Russian trade with basically all of its um, counterparts, all countries. Um, that was just simply because logistic uh, supply chains were breaking down, financial transactions were not working anymore. So it was there was a huge disruption um, basically going on that also affected, for example, Russia's trade with China. So we see that in last year, in April and March, um, that Russia's trade significantly declined. 
And then there was sort of um, an intermediate stage, I would say. So it was the recovery uh, when um, Russia managed to reestablish um, some of its supply chains, when we actually realized or Russia realized that um, that it could you know, continue to export most of its commodities as before, uh, when sort of a lot of this dust settled. And, and, and this was then a situation in which Russia had a tremendous trade surplus really tremendous because on the one hand, imports were depressed, um, imports fell, and it didn't recover until the end of the year. And at the same time, we saw this huge increase in commodity prices uh, and, and Russia was exporting basically the same volume. And this led to huge, a huge trade surplus. Now, I think we are now sort of in the third stage, which I would call, uh, we're sliding into a, a sort of a new normal for Russia. So the, the question is, of course, what how it's going to look like in the next years. We see that imports have recovered. They're basically essentially at the same level at uh, where they were, were before the war. Um, we see that exports are actually declining. It's not really um, it's not really a critical situation for Russia. There have been worse situations, but if this is um, this is now a chronic situation, then um, you know, this is this this could turn out to be a problem in the longer run, and we have seen as a as a result of that also a depreciation of the ruble in the last months. Thank you very much. I think that uh, that's uh, that's a great uh, summary uh, that we can use as a starting point for the rest of the conversation. Now, you've outlined these different stages uh, where Russia has made adjustments, well, was forced to, and then uh, itself made adjustments on the export side, also in the import side, also in terms of acquisition of goods that is now uh, receiving through third countries. Uh, what have these changes done for Russia's economy more broadly in 2022 and now the first half of 2023? And what has contributed most in your, your view to the fact that Russia has really uh, overperformed expectations uh, economically for, for most of this period? Well, I think it's a great question. And I think we have to, we have to talk about expectations uh, because, um, uh, I mean, the whole situation of last year was uh, unprecedented. So there wasn't before a situation where a country as big as Russia uh, was sanctioned in the same way. Uh, and, and so what there was simply, we, you know, economists did not know what, uh, you know, how it would turn out. And of course, we have sophisticated models to predict growth, but in the end, there are assumptions in these models, and these assumptions are made by human. And uh, and so these assumptions are basically, I mean, they 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 are, I guess, uh, you know, informed plausible guesses. Uh, and then, of course, economists look at what other economists are saying, and this ended up in a situation where all forecasting institutes were saying Russia is. Russia's economy will be, um, you know, collapsing by I don't know, ten percent or seven percent. So this is, um, you know, if you have certain assumptions, then this is going to be the result. But the assumptions were uncertain. So um, we basically we had very little information about uh, how this is going to play out. And um, then, you know, what was, I would say, much, you know, well, a bit probably surprising was the resilience of Russia. Which uh, you know I think is co you know connected to different factors. Um, one important factor is simply that Russia is a market economy. I mean, we were also surprised about the resilience of the EU when the when Russia stopped its gas supplies. It was also surprisingly good. There were, there's adaptation if thousands or millions of managers uh, are thinking about how to best adapt um, and looking for solutions. 
I guess rather thousands than millions, um, then that you know an economy would adjust. And you know, in this in this situation, it was possible because um, in the end, um, I would say that um, especially technology embargo is quite difficult to enforce in in today's world uh, with you know the way that trade is interconnected and with the huge gaps that there are in this embargo, namely. Uh, big countries like China not following it, and and this means that um, it is you know it is possible for, it was possible for Russian companies to um, re-establish their supply chains relatively quickly, and then there were other factors. I mean, we discussed already about the the boom in Russian exports that helped a lot, and of course the Russian um, government spending helped a lot. Um, actually, Russia planned originally to spend um, around twenty four trillion rubles uh, from the budget last year and they ended up spending more than 31 trillion so this is an increase um, of around five percent of gdp so it's a huge fiscal impulse and this of course also has helped thank you very much you, you mentioned china and china obviously plays a, a big role in in various uh, segments of this adjustment of russia's trade relationships it is uh, you know, one of the two most important export markets for, for Russian oil and gas at this point. Uh, Russia is also uh, acquiring from China uh, goods that it is no longer receiving from countries that have imposed sanctions. And China is also playing a major role as a country through which Russia is still getting uh, certain components, microchips and so forth, um, that it needs for, for, for its economy more broadly, but also for military production. Uh, could you maybe summarize for us how this Russia-China relationship has uh, has developed in the past, say, 18 months, and where that leaves Russia now uh, in the global economy, but also uh, with regard to China? Well, yeah, I mean, the, the development was, I mean, at, at least what we're seeing in trade is, uh, is you know, it was a big expansion. It was very uh, positive. Um, but I think overall, it's a bit, it's a bit more complicated. So um, what China has been able to do and has been doing is um, increasing its import of Russian commodities uh, to a certain degree. Uh, Russian exports of oil are to some degree limited by infrastructure. There's one big pipeline going to the east and it is basically running at full capacity. There are some other exports, uh, you know, via ships, but still it is it is it has not taken off if you look at the quantities as much as the export of uh, Russian oil to India, for example. So China is taking more commodities. And at the moment, um, if you look at the monthly statistics for the last month, then China is taking about one third of all of Russian exports. And it's mostly it's mostly com commodities, oil, coal. Um, there's now also fuel oils or so refined products. Um, part of it. Um, so this is basically what China is doing on the one hand. And then um, Russia has imported more from China, um, especially in, I mean, it, 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 it is especially in heavily sanctioned areas. So like, for example, machinery exports from China to Russia have increased. But if you look at the overall numbers, the most significant increase of exports from China to Russia has been actually in vehicles. So uh, cars and trucks. This, um, you know, is accounting for most of the increase in, in Chinese exports to Russia, which is quite interesting because these are goods that Russia used to make itself, and now it is importing them, basically exchanging them for oil uh, from China. So uh, if you look at the trade relationship, 
Um, yeah, China plays a crucial role in, in cushioning some of the effects of the sanctions. And um, also, I mean, the, the Chinese currency, the renminbi, um, plays an increasing role for Russia as well. It is uh, it does still a lot of deficiencies, so it's not a good replacement for the dollar or the euro at this point. But um, for sanctioned Russian companies, um, you know, sometimes there's simply no alternative. And also for the Russian government, there's uh, sometimes no alternative. So the renminbi, the yuan, is also no part of the um, of the reserves. Um, and I saw the reserves, it was already part of that before, but now it is uh, basically the main, main component and it is part of the uh, National Welfare Fund of the Finance Ministry uh, because, you know, the, the, the toxic currencies of uh, the so-called unfriendly countries are not usable for that anymore. So there is, uh, there is this narrative out there that uh, China is kind of saving the Russian economy and is, is this something that you would prescribe to or is it oversimplifying things? And maybe is, is, is this also a question of different time horizons, right? Saving the Russian economy for when and for how long? Right. So I think that uh, in this current situation, uh, China is really crucial. I mean, it, it, it really helps to, to, to soften the effect of sanctions in this particular moment because if not for China, Russia, there would be simply scarcities of, of you know goods. A lot of you know a lot across many categories in Russia. It's simply uh, you know we have we would have much higher inflation. We would have a much more um, issues in production lines in Russia. For example, there was a survey uh, by the Gaidar Institute in 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 early this year in January, where around seventy percent of Russian companies said that they are replacing sanctioned goods with uh, goods from China. So I mean machinery components, replacement parts, and so on. So in, in that sense, yes, it is definitely, it's extremely important. And it is also, I mean, we have to see that it, it's also in the interest of China to undermine the effectiveness of sanctions because they don't like the instrument as such. And they don't like the goal of the instrument of, you know, a weakening Russia uh, in this case. So this is, um, this is I, I think, very much in China's interest. But um, so there are some things that in the beginning I said it's, it's a bit contradictory as well. There are some things happening in the Russia-China relationship which uh, actually go in a different direction. Uh, we had um, you know several very um, you know well-known uh, big partnerships between Chinese and Russian companies. There were you know that were actually more about the future than I mean about high tech, for example, than uh, than just simply the export of oil. And um, and these partnerships, for the most part, have died. So, for example, we had um, a very important partnership of uh, Huawei um, with several Russian companies. I mean, there was a partnership with uh, Sparebank, which wanted to be a digital, um, you know, company become a digital company. So they had a partnership on cloud technologies, but Sparebank had to get rid of its uh, cloud division because of sanctions. Then Huawei stopped delivering um, mobile communications equipment very early in the war to Russia. And um, so it is really um, th th that cooperation has really, I, I mean, it's there's still some activities ongoing, but it doesn't really have a big future. The same for Alibaba, which had a huge uh, partnership um, with uh, VK. Uh, so the, the, the media and, and online services group of, of Alicia Usmanov. 
uh, and they wanted to basically build a, a, a Russian Amazon uh, to expand in the whole um, post-Soviet space. And, and also this, this uh, joint venture also died. And finally, there was a, a corporation to build a, a new aircraft, basically a long haul um, aircraft, um, you know, together from with Russian companies and Chinese companies. And that project actually also died this year because uh, you know they needed Western parts to be part of this plane, and the sanctions don't allow the export of those to Russia anymore. So I mean, we see that sanctions, um, you know, they have an ambivalent effect, and in the, the more futuristic type of cooperation that was ongoing between Russia and China actually um, actually is, is you know is, is damaged and. I think this is an indication of what you know where this partnership is taking Russia uh, in the future. Where you know what we already see that you know China is exporting finished goods to Russia, like cars, for example, that previously were produced with the help of Western investors in Russia, and 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 in return it simply gets um, you know certain commodities. So I think it is not um, it's not sort of in, in Russia's and you know what Russia wants out of this partnership, what is going to happen. It's more what China wants to have out of this partnership. Yeah, thank you very much. It sounds like a relatively opportunistic approach to, you know, this, you know, this, this uh, opportunity that has opened up uh, due to sanctions. You mentioned the car industry. So basically, uh, Russia is no longer producing the cars themselves. Uh, China is, um, is, is selling them to Russia. Is this, is this a good indication of how China is looking at this trade relationship in the medium to, to long term, if, if one can say that? Well, yeah, I think that, I mean, for China, Russia is economically, is, is the partnership is more of a liability uh, than, than sort of an asset because um, it brings a lot of risk um, to, to engage with Russia economically. Russia is a significant um, supplier of different kinds of resources to China. Um, also some technologies, especially um, arms manufacturing. Um, so that there are some things that China is interested in, but also, I mean, you know, there is also a divergence of what, what Russia wants to do at the moment in the world, which is more or less, uh, you know, tearing down um, um, you know, the, the previous system in China, I guess, you know, has a more long-term perspective and would like to preserve the current system a bit longer. Is not interested in this radical approach that, that you know, has come out, out of, of this full evasion of Russia to Ukraine. And, um, and so this is why I think that China wants to keep Russia sort of at arm's length and um, will continue trading with it, will um, try to avoid that, uh, you know, keep Russia from completely failing. Um, but I think that um, it is not, it doesn't see a lot of economic opportunity in, in, in Russia. We can also look at what Chinese companies are doing and, uh, and there is very little interest now, although there are a lot of opportunities in Russia, wants them to come to, to Russia. Putin, you know, said that he would like to see Chinese companies in Russia in March when Xi Jinping was there. But uh, they are at the moment not very interested and have never been really interested in investing in Russia. So I, I think that this will be a very, I mean, we, we will see very large trade numbers. They are going to increase, but this relationship economically, it's lacking some depth. So it is not really, um, I think this is also how, how, how China views it. It doesn't want to commit itself too deeply to this a bit, um, you know, erratic and um, unpredictable, unpredictable partner. Looking at this from the Russian perspective, 
Is there any kind of medium to long-term vision or is this rather a question of just uh, currently surviving this extraordinary environment and basically live to fight another way, uh, day? Yeah, I think that uh, Russia at the moment is still very much, um, you know, fighting the the simply the acute consequences and the fallout. There is not, I mean, whatever you think about longer term perspective from the Russian perspective, also economically depends so much on what the you know how the war will continue. And um, uh, so I think I think Russia, of course, I mean the the rhetoric that we get from Russia is that it is basically you know, continuously open for trade and that it's, you know, the responsible actors and that the West is sort of uh, doing these irresponsible things like sanctions and, and Russia is actually in favor of, of integrating with the whole world and, you know, trading freely. But um, yeah, I mean, this is, uh, I, I don't think that there's a lot behind this rhetoric. So Russia, of course, would like to um, have as good trade relationships with as many non-Western countries as it can, both economically and politically, because, you know, it doesn't, it wants to fight sort of this isolation um, that it faces politically as well. Um, but yeah, I mean, it, it, it is what, 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 if you look at the policies, uh, what they are doing, they are trying to enable its business to um, to you know, create new connections with businesses in other countries, but I wouldn't see any, any long-term strategic approach there. I would rather say that Russia is actually, I mean, if there is a strategy, then it is self-sufficiency still. So Russia wants to rather, um, you know, increase its capacity to produce things domestically and has it is investing in that a lot. Um, because, I mean, we have seen over the course of the last year that sanctions are not only affecting what companies and sanctioning countries are doing. It also affects what China is doing and maybe um, at some point, uh, China will agree to not export certain sensitive goods to Russia anymore, and then Russia will not have a source for it anymore, or will have find it very difficult. So um, I think that there is still uh, sort of a, a preference for uh, you know producing stuff domestically and, and not being this this um, very open and integrated player that Russia sort of at the moment rhetorically pretends to be. Thank you. Uh, you you commented earlier on uh, on what economists are facing when trying to project uh, GDP, um, and and this was about projecting GDP for for this year and the next. So you're going to uh, very much like the following question, which is um, how does this uh, Russia-China relationship look like uh, in ten years from now? Uh, there's sometimes this idea out there that Russia is becoming a kind of vessel of China, basically a, a gas station. Uh, and somewhat of an export market. Is this accurate or is it oversimplifying uh, what we're looking at? Hmm. So I believe that Russia will be, I mean, we, we of course, again, have to assume things. We have to assume, um, which I think is plausible, that Russia's, even if, if, if the war was to end at some point, the conflict um, will remain, so the sanctions will not be lifted. There will not be a different government in Russia and so on. Um, and I think under these circumstances, um, then uh, China, I mean, they, both countries will, uh, Russia will integrate sort of deeper in, in the Chinese universe of goods, machinery, and so on. Not integrate in the sense that it, it integrates in supply chains, but simply that, you know, the Russian machinery park will be replaced, which is now mostly Western equipment will be replaced by Chinese equipment. And over time, you know, I think that this, 
what we saw in the last one and a half years, it will actually continue and it will sort of become, um, you know, it will become even more of a dependency. It is already, you could already call it a dependency, while before the war, I would rather call it some, you know, some diversification from the Russian side. Right now, it is really China does some things for Russia that no other countries, no other country does at the moment and can. So, I mean, this, this will continue. Um, and yeah, I, I, I think that um, this relationship will then um, be a, a bit more simplified in the way that, um, you know, it will be more, even more an exchange of simply commodities for finished goods. So China will replace to some degree what Russia cannot produce anymore. Um, despite this um, dependency, I don't think that we can call Russia a vassal of China. Um, this is, I mean, even, you know, if China could pressure Russia if it wanted to, I think it is a big question if if China actually wants to do it at this point, because they don't want to push Putin in the corner when he's maybe considered weak already, because, you know, so much depends on him retaining power in Russia. And then the question is simply, does China have the, the possibility to, to influence Russian policymaking, uh, especially if it's something so um, so so crucial and so existential for Russia, like the Ukraine war. So I mean, the, um, I, I'm really skeptical that the China will be able and willing to turn this economic dependency in some um, you know political remote control uh, for for policy in Russia, because there's also a really strong. Um, I mean, this is the the, the one thing that. Um, that the people in Moscow do not want and that they are allergic against in China so far. I mean, they they, they try to consider that uh, in their dealings with Russia. So for China overall, I mean, the main issue is keeping Russia on board, keeping Putin on board. And as long as that is the case, I think that they will not try to endanger this by, you know, uh, meddling uh, in, in, in Russian foreign policy decision-making, even though they could, uh, you know, they could apply a lot of pressure if they wanted to. Thank you. That, that's a very interesting uh, perspective. Then going a little beyond uh, China, um, it, it is playing a role, a, a major role in, in a lot of these uh, trade relationships, but it's not the only country uh, with which Russia has uh, built new or different uh, relationships in the, in the past 18 months. So which other places should we um, should we be aware of either as new export markets, as new origins for, for certain goods, as countries through which Russia is, uh, is acquiring uh, goods it can no longer get directly from the West? Maybe not at the scale of China, but, but nevertheless important when considering these kind of uh, changes. Mm. So, I mean, there is a whole number of, of countries that we could talk about, which are, you know, First and foremost, the countries in, in Russia's neighborhood, um, there are simply very strong economic incentives to, um, to, to open up a company in, let's say, Kazakhstan or Armenia or Turkey that um, is in the business of uh, exporting things to Russia that, uh, that the EU doesn't export anymore, simply because there's, there are very high margins in this business. And it is something that is desired and even facilitated by the Russian side. And um, so, so I think that um, that you know, all in all of these countries, what we are seeing is you know some kind of 
uh, sanctions circumvention industry. It doesn't have to be necessarily in breach of sanctions, although often it is. Um, but I think that you know this is something that that's simply a consequence of this this trade, um, you know, the, the current trade system that we have, where it's very difficult to really control uh, what all of these countries are doing, particularly if the goods are small, lightweight, and so on. Like uh, you know, we would have the, the what like would be the case with with the semiconductors or other crucial dual use good that that Russia shouldn't be getting at this point. But uh, you know, I would still stress that there you know there are many of those small countries that are um, sort of engaging in this, and we clearly see that um, that Western exports to these countries in certain goods categories rise, while their exports to Russia in certain goods cat categories rise. Um, still, I would say that the meaning of China for circumvention is paramount, and you know the amount of also Western goods, which flows through China, um, you know, which is maybe produced in Malaysia, um, Vietnam, North, South, South Korea, um, and then is exported to China and then from China to Russia. This is really um, sort of on a, on, a, on a different magnitude. So I think that it is good that the EU talks to these smaller countries and tries to get some kind of compliance. Um, but I think that the main the main price is China, and and this is the at the moment the most urgent problem. Now, I mean, regarding Russian exports, um, of course, there's India, um, which is now taking in a big chunk of Russian oil exports. Um, Indian Russian trade, I mean, it, it 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 was actually relatively small before the war. It was usually around, let's say, uh, Russia would export around six billion dollars per year and import like 3 billion. So this is about 1% of Russian trade. And, um, and you know, after the war started, what happened was that um, Indian exports to Russia actually fell. Uh, so this is mostly uh, stuff like pharma, agricultural, also electronics. Um, while at the same time, um, you know, especially when oil sanctions came into play, um, Russian oil exports skyrocketed. So, um, you know, instead of exporting let's say 6 billion uh, per year russia is suddenly exporting more than 30 billion and uh, and this of course you know it is it means that russian indian trade is very um, asymmetric and um, and at the moment this is sort of also a problem because um uh, you know the question is how how indian importers actually are paying for this russian oil maybe this is a problem we will discuss later on um but yeah india is really i mean has really stepped up its its oil imports and we have to admit that this is uh, something that they do that is basically by design so we are importing less russian oil especially in the eu i mean basically all of these us us as well but they are exporter country i mean uk as well we're not importing russian oil anymore uh, for the most part but somebody has to import it Otherwise, there will not be enough oil in the world market. Uh, and so, I mean, this, this strong increase in Indian imports of Russian oil is actually something um, that, we are, that we are willing to tolerate simply because it saves the world market from being undersupplied. And um, yeah, but the relationship between India and Russia is going to be very interesting going forward because um, India is also an you know, important buyer of Russian weaponry. Uh, and they need this weaponry also to counter China. So this is going to be interesting for several reasons. First of all, I mean, we see that the, you know, the closer link of, of, of China and Russia 
uh, now that China is and uh, now that Russia is isolated and under sanctions. And at the same time, it's unclear how many weapons Russia will be able to export in the future to India. And um, of course, this would be an opportunity for Western countries to supply their weapons and maybe get India to ditch this dependency on Russia. Um, but yeah, it's, it, it, you know, it's, it's quite an interesting case, this relationship between Russia and India. Thank you. Maybe on a related topic. So there, there are sanctions, for instance, uh, the, the, the oil price cap that you touched upon that are kind of, while not directly affecting certain countries' trade with Russia, they're trying to create a certain incentive structure that changes, uh, you know, Russia's market power vis-a-vis -vis these countries. And India is uh, probably a good example for that as the main new buyer of Russian oil. Uh, is this actually happening? Uh, are these countries in a different position when it comes to Russia? Uh, maybe not the, you know, Russia's neighbors that are heavily economically dependent on it, but rather countries such as India and maybe some others. Um, is, is, does this work as intended? Well, I mean, I would say um, in some cases it does not. I mean, you know, this was also, of course, a study that you co-authored. Uh, where you show that um, you know that some Russian exports are um, definitely above uh, the price cap, and that most likely also um, there you know is a breach of the oil cap in some export markets, specifically you know in Russia's Pacific ports. Um, but um, on the other hand, we have uh, Russian exports. I mean, Russian exports to India for the most part have been uh, below the price cap. The problem is that um, you know there could be several reasons for this, and I think we are about to find out how much of that is due to the price cap and how much of it is simply because there is an um, you know too much supply for, of Russian oil. Because after the EU introduced its uh, import embargo uh, last December, I mean Russia really urgently had to find new buyers for its oil and was basically forced to give discounts. So now we have prices for Russian oil which are falling. But um, it's not always possible to tell if they are below $60 because, you know, there's simply so much Russian oil that is looking for a new buyer or if that is the oil price cap at work. Now we have, um, I mean, we have the production reduction of, um, of OPEC and of Russia, and we have, you know, oil prices have actually picked up in the last weeks. Uh, and this should lead to a situation where we can better judge if the oil price cap is working, because if we see in the next weeks um, that um, you know that the discount of Russian oil stays the same and, and the Russian prices simply move up um, with world market prices, with brand prices, for example, then uh, you know the oil price cap clearly is not working. And if they stay the same, and if the gap increases, if they stay below sixty dollars, then it is working. But um, I would say we are still in the process of finding out. There is evidence of some um, some circumvention, uh, definitely, and uh, you know of 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 exports above the cap. Um, I think that as long as it works, let's say for seventy five percent of Russian export, as long as it uh, leads to Russia not getting dozens of billions of dollars, then uh, you know the G seven um, you know would be content with the effect if it proves to be really. It doesn't if it doesn't have an effect at all, then um, you know I think that there. I mean, definitely anyway, there has to be some um, uh, some more action to make it more effective uh, to avoid circumvention. But um, you know, if the next weeks tell us that it is actually really doesn't affect have an effect at all, 
then you know something will have to you know drastically change about this oil cap for it to make it work. Yeah, you're you're correct. It is uh, something that we're really actively uh, monitoring. Um, you touched upon the fact earlier that in essence trade flows have to you know find uh, kind of a you know a, a, a counterparty in financial flows, and you also touched upon uh, the the ruble depreciation that we've been uh, seeing since the fall. Could you explain to us a little bit what is happen there if this is uh, economic fundamentals driving it, what it means for Russia, and also what policymakers may be thinking about a weaker ruble. Right. So um, first of all, I think that uh, I think we have to clarify how the ruble course is, uh, is made, because there are some rumors out there that it's simply um, a fake exchange rate that is set um, by the Russian authorities. But um, you know this is not the case. There are some interventions by Russian authorities which change uh, demand and supply in the ruble market, but the market itself is functioning. So there is no black market, for example, for, for dollars in Russia, which would appear if the ruble exchange was simply uh, set uh, by the authorities, not represent um, demand and supply. So it is. Um, you know, it is the true exchange rate, and um, and actually we saw that it fell um, from last September when it you know it was about uh, 50 rubles per euro to now where we have about 102 rubles per euro. So it lost more than half of its value um, basically over the course of nine months, which is um, you know it's quite quite extreme. Uh, it is um, in some ways similar to what happened uh, in 2014 to the to the Russian ruble when there was also devaluation. Um, although the you know the previous situation in September was also unnatural um, because uh, you know because we have this we had these huge exports. So I would say that mostly fundamentals are driving this. Um, if we look at Russia's uh, current account balance, then we see that um, because of the you know a bit slower imports, so imports last year were around 10% less than uh, 2021, and because of you know higher exports, exports were about 20% higher than in 2021. Um, we had this very high current account surpluses. Russia always has a current account surplus. I mean, this is a structural, um, mostly not always, but mostly. Um, I mean, there are there are some. If if you in include services, it changes a bit because Russian tourists are spending um, a few billion, and then there are a few billion which are transferred as remittances uh, to countries abroad. So overall, um, it is a bit less than simply the trade surplus. But I think the main driving factor is the trade surplus. And what we are seeing right now, I mean, in the second quarter, so from April to June 2023, um, actually Russia's current account surplus uh, was just five billion dollars, if I, uh, you know, recall, you know, if I remember correctly, uh, while it was um, above 70 billion um, in the, you know, in the strongest quarter last year. So this is clearly, I think, the main driver. Um, of the rubles depreciation, um, because you know this is uh, this of course creates a lot uh, supply um, of rubles and uh, you know um, not enough supply of foreign currencies um, on the uh, exchange. Now, um, of course, uh, yeah, we will have to see um, how this continues. I think that uh, you know a part of it could also be related to some political uncertainties. I mean, we had uh, this. 
uh, you know, this 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 uh, Prigozhin mutiny a couple of weeks ago, and uh, we saw that it led to some outflows also of rubles. And Russians are transferring some rubles abroad. They, you know, many Russians have now bank accounts in Kazakhstan, other countries, because that gives them credit cards that they can use internationally. Um, so they are transferring some of that abroad and exchanging it into uh, into foreign exchange. Um, but yeah, we will we'll have to see because it could also be that some of what we saw over the last weeks when the depreciation was really extreme could also be speculation because speculation is also still ongoing on this market, of course. So, but I, I think overall we will see the further uh, depreciation of the ruble over the next uh, one or two years. So I think it's realistic to say, for example, that the ruble will reach maybe 120 per dollar uh, sometime, you know, next year. So this is, you know, this is realistic if the trade flows are continuing as they are at the moment. And, um, you know, what the Rust, Rust authorities are doing, I mean, the, the central bank, I think is, you know, it's very likely to raise interest rate later this week. So um, that is one way, of course, to counter it. They will do that um, also to, to fight inflation because inflation is one of the main consequences of the ruble uh, depreciation. So we will see that many of the imported goods in Russia are simply becoming more expensive now. And this is, you know, will have sort of this knock-on effect uh, on inflation in Russia, which has been rather low in the last months. So yeah, this is, I think, the, the main response you can also argue that the, the weak ruble is connected to, um, you know, the, the government spending because, you know, it creates a lot of demand in Russia. Um, it, it leads to more imports. It's also a weakening factor. But I think that Russia will not rein in its fiscal spending because it simply needs that to, to, to sustain its war effort. Um, but, yeah, I think that the interest rates are going to increase. Okay. Well, in a way, what you said about the, the ruble exchange rate is, is encouraging, at least from perspective of an economist, because it means that it functions as, you know, uh, an indicator for, for something and not as, you know, kind of a meaningless uh, policy variable that, that doesn't really describe fundamentals. Mm -hmm. um, you mentioned the, the fiscal picture. Uh, so, and, and also, you know, on, on the one hand, the weaker ruble creates uh, upward inflation pressures as we for instance, saw last year when market panic essentially drove to large ruble depreciation that then more than went away. Um, but on the other hand, it also increases uh, government revenues from things that are sold in dollars. So for instance, uh, oil and gas. So what should we expect there? Maybe also in the context of the, the, the Russian budget that seems to have improved a little bit over the, the last uh, couple of months. Yeah, so I think that um, if you look at the Russian budget, um, you know, it's sometimes difficult to judge from month to month uh, these changes. There might be a big chunk of defense spending, like in the beginning of the year when there were some, um, you know, state contracts being paid or, you know, there's advance payments for this. Um, and this might, uh, you know, create a new deficit very soon. I mean, but you're right that over the, the last months, actually, the deficit for the year has not really increased. Um, regarding the revenue, I mean, so far it has been more or less the same. I mean, it was, it is actually quite low this year, about half of what it was last year. But this is also on the one hand, because the energy prices are lower this year. On the other hand, as you just mentioned, we had this period of a very weak ruble last year, and this really helped uh, government revenue. So it was really skyrocketing. If you think about the, the Russian revenue from oil and gas, it is mostly 
um, very closely correlates to the oil price in ruble. So you can take the oil price in dollar, let's say $80, $80 and you multiply this with the current ruble exchange rate, um, you know, which is uh, at the for, for the dollar at the moment is is um, is 90, and you get something like um, 8,100 rubles per barrel. Um, if I corrected, if I calculated that correctly, and uh, this is actually for Russia, is a you know it's quite high. Um, if we think back to last year when we had an oil price of maybe in 90 or 100, and we had a ruble of around 50 or 60, then you can see if you multiply that, you know, we get like 5,000, 6,000 uh, rubles per barrel. It is actually lower, and so I'm you know I expect that actually in the next month, you know, because of the weaker a ruble, we will see that Russian revenue from oil and gas will exceed uh, what they got what um, uh, at the same period last year, last year when the ruble was already very strong and sort of the, the, the prices on world markets were coming back a little bit. So I think that this will help um, the Russian budget. I mean, of course, Russia has a fiscal rule, so some of this might be then sent uh, to the National Welfare Fund. So we might see the National Welfare Fund being actually uh, filled back up again. I expect this news to come either this month or the next, and then everybody will be surprised and, and ask why is this happening? But actually this is simply the fiscal rule that you know if, if revenue surpasses a certain amount, then it is sent to the National Welfare Fund. Um, but yeah, I, I think that this it will not bring the Russian budget into balance this year but um, it will definitely limit the deficit. In the longer run, I think I actually it's, 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 it's not really a good thing. I'm also not for the Russian budget because a lot of the um, uh, payments, um, spe specifically pension payments, but also um, uh, let's say salaries for state employees are linked to inflation and they will have to be increased as well. Um, and also this inflationary shock is something which is which Russians you know react very sensitively on. So I think it is if you know I, I don't think that Russia is that the, the Russian government is really interested in the ruble weakening, although it might alleviate some of the fiscal um, you know stresses that it is facing this year. Thank you. Um, so maybe let me try to to reconnect this discussion about the ruble to our broader topic of uh, of Russia's role in global trade, because one story that is also being discussed out there in the media and among uh, you know think tank community and so forth is that uh, the currency composition of Russia's trade is allegedly changing. Russia would like to use the ruble for some transactions. Uh, it is also uh, using renminbi for transactions with China. There are stories about uh, Russian entities accumulating uh, rupee uh, uh, funds in Indian banks. So what can you tell us about this kind of shift that kind of goes along with uh, the, the change in the trade relationships that we're seeing for Russia more broadly? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it is to some degree connected to that, but it's not uh, the only explanation. So we, um, if you look at the shift, um, you know, you, you see a clear increase of Russian trade in, in yuan, so in, in, in Chinese yuan, that is, that is actually, I mean, very, the, the total amount of this, um, of Russian trade settled in yuan is actually very similar uh, to the trade figures between Russia and China. So it is a bit less than, so if, for example, Russia 
is now um, exporting 30% of its exports to China, then uh, the, the share of uh, renminbi or yuan payments is 25%. And if Russia is importing 35% from China, then the share of yuan in its imports is 30%. So, I mean, you can see it's it's just a little less than the total exports to China. And this tells you that, um, you know, the that the trade between Russia and China apparently to a large degree has been uh, has switched from um, dollars and euros, which were you know dominating before um, before 20, 20, 2022. It is now um, has been apparently switched to other to the yuan. The reason why I believe it is um, in this relation happening this relationship, we only have the total figures. We don't have it, unfortunately, the data anymore for different uh, trade with different countries. Is that um, actually the yuan? I mean, from 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 anecdotal evidence, data, some officials, and so on, it doesn't seem to play a, play a big role in the trade of Russia with other countries. So we had this discussion, for example, uh, regarding tra Russia's trade with India, because um, there, I mean, uh, this it's quite interesting development. I mean, Russia was exporting much more oil to India, and oil trade is predominantly settled in dollars, um, also Russian oil exports. And um, because the dollars are sometimes problematic for the Russian companies, and um, you know, because you know there, there, there are risks involved here, the, um, the, they're looking for, I mean, both partners were looking for different ways to, to settle these payments. And um, then they ended up with Indian rupees. And for some time, Russia was actually trying to um, build up a mechanism for rupee trade with India. But um, the, the trade relationship is simply too unbalanced. So you cannot have, you cannot settle. I mean, with Russia, China, it works perfectly because both can, I mean, Russia exports a lot to China, China exports a lot of, to Russia. So this is a match. But in with India, you have like 10 times more Russian exports to India than the other way around. Um, so you will have to, you will need to use the country, uh, the, the currency of a third country. And in the past, this was the dollar, but uh, you know, when the dollar is not possible, they try to use the rupee. Um, but these rupees, I mean, the Russian companies didn't find anything to spend them on. Um, so um, there are now solutions discussed that in this trade relationship, they could also use Chinese yuan, but um, Indian policymakers don't really like the idea. And then another possibility could be um, to actually use the dirham. So um, because both countries have a strong trade relationship with uh, United Arab Emirates, and um, and so so this would also be could be a solution, but I think for now they are stuck and for the most part uh, to the U.S. dollar, and um, yeah, so we we saw that there was a lot of experimenting with different kinds of currencies. We saw that um, the yuan really plays a much bigger role now for Russia, particularly in its trade relationship with China, but actually you know in Russia's trade with all other countries. Um, I would say it's still predominantly the US dollar with the only exception of countries in the Eurasian Economic Union because there uh, the ruble has really increased its share. Um, and so, so I would say that you know, in Russia's neighborhood, there's much more trade in the ruble. Uh, with China, there's much more trade in yuan. With the rest of the world, it is mostly still uh, the US dollar. Thank you. Uh, that, that's, uh, that's very interesting. And also, you know, the, the kind of schemes that you described uh, with regard to what Russian companies were were attempting to do with their rupees, it it touches on on a somewhat broader question, which is that all these schemes they they are not cost free, right? So uh, for for Russia to acquire certain goods from alternative suppliers or via third countries is not 
is not without cost, right? And this is part of the idea of sanctions to an extent. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I think that um, that's definitely true if you have intermediaries in your trade. I mean, there are several reasons why um, parallel imports, you know, non-licensed imports to Russia, you know, are usually more expensive. Um, I mean, the first reason is that you have intermediaries who have to get their cut. Then um, you also have uh, smaller uh, portions you, you cannot really import in bulk that well, and you have much more cumbersome and, you know, longer trade routes as well often. So, I mean, so there are different factors that are increasing the cost of these kind of um, imports, which are mostly, you know, done for consumer goods. Um, in the, you know, last year, it wasn't really, the, the Russians couldn't really feel it because the ruble was super strong and it basically compensated for all of that. So because they had a strong ruble, they were basically able to pay for all of these extra costs um, and still get these goods. But now with the ruble that week, I think that we are going to see actually that these goods, which are still imported from the West um, through third countries, alternative channels, alternative means of payment, that you know these these costs will become really significant. It's difficult to estimate them. Um, I tried to do an estimate. I went on the on the Russian uh, car trading site today to see how much cars cost because there are still cars from from Western countries that you can buy in Russia, um, like as, let's say BMW, um, and they are imported uh, via third countries. Sometimes from China. Sometimes they come from Kazakhstan or through Iran, and so so different kinds of ways and. Um, so I what I couldn't really find um, a big difference in the price there to the price in uh, if you you know transfer it to to ruble or euros, um, and which I think is because it was probably imported at a time when the ruble was stronger. But what I realized is that there's only luxury um, cars there. So I mean, it's simply um, all of this hassle apparently is only worth it. For cars that are really expensive, so let's say 50, 70,000 euros, um, so really luxury cars. Uh, in that case, it makes sense, but for the mass market, apparently it is already too expensive. That's a very good point. Now we're basically almost uh, running out of time. So I want to bring it back to the to the question of sanctions more broadly, which to no surprise to the audience uh, is one of the things that at KC Institute we really focus on. Um, so, so given all these developments with regard to Russia's role in, in international trade that we've been talking about, how should we look at this? Is this is this a good thing? Is this a bad thing? If it's a bad thing, uh, what can and should we do about it? It's a little bit of a provocative question, so apologies in advance for that. Mm. It's a very important, very good question, and uh, if we, you know, if you look at the effects then clearly something has been achieved. I mean, the, the decline in, in Russian revenues, it is partially because um, the world market price for oil is going down, but it's also because of sanctions and sanctions are causing lots of complications and problems. And you can say that they have already cost Russia its economic future. Because at the moment we don't see, uh, let's say, major investments from foreign companies in Russia. Um, I think that the business case for deeply integrated complex supply chains and production in Russia is actually not there anymore. And over the longer term, this is going to um, really uh, mean the degradation of Russia's also industrial and economic potential. Uh, and this is something which is intentional. So this is intended by the sanctions because um, yeah, I think we can expect to have 
uh, tense relations with Russia, whatever happens uh, with regards to the war for the foreseeable future, meaning maybe also in 10 and 20 years. And in that case, it plays a role if Russia has a thriving industrial sector and is able to manufacture whatever weapon it wants, or if it is uh, to some degree weakened. So in that case, yes, there's an effect, but um, <laughs> there's a big but. And um, that is the, uh, you know, that I think to some degree, um, the the amount of gaps and circumvention is uh, simply uh, well, it's simply it's simply too great to call it a success, especially regarding the technology embargo. Um, and this uh, is of course related to Russian military production, um, which apparently is is rather expanding than uh, degrading at the moment. And uh, this you know because of all of these circumvention uh, schemes that we are seeing. Um, I think part of it is that we have to acknowledge that, um, you know, in the current trade system that we had, we also have a one huge country which does not adhere to the sanctions, or at least does not support the sanctions, is able to produce a lot of things, is deeply integrated with the world, like I'm talking about China, of course, if we have a country like this, and you don't really have it on board, then it is going to be difficult to make this a technology embargo um, airtight. So I think this is something that we will have to uh, tackle for probably the coming years. Um, and, and, you know, I think identify which components are the most crucial ones. And, and really with those components, I mean, like a very short list, we then have to go also to, to the Chinese leadership and explain to them how important it is to us and um, how it actually, um, is, is hurting China's interest that it's doing that. And um, so this is, but this is, this will be challenging. And so what we saw is that our sanctions, I mean, there is a certain limit to what we can achieve. And the second lesson is that we, I mean, the we have these dependencies, um, even if we wouldn't like to have it, but we do have a dependency on Russian exports. We need Russian oil to be on the market. Otherwise we are going to have a you know, world economic crisis. And um, and this means that Russia has a guarantee that it will be able to export its oil for the for, also for the foreseeable future. Let's say for the coming years, it might be possible to degrade Russian oil exports also over time. But uh, let's say for the next three or five years, Russia can count off bil on billions and billions of dollars, and there's nothing that we can do about it. And this is, I mean, of course, I mean there's something we can there are things we can do about it. We can. Um, lower the oil price cap if you get it working properly. This is probably the you know most promising um, course of action um, because you know because we do need this volumes of oil to be to remain on the market at least for now. So there might be a window of opportunity when oil demand at some point shrinks, but at the moment it is not. Uh, we cannot see it. So we see that both on Russian exports and on Russian imports there are. Unfortunately, certain limits to um, so to what we are able to achieve in the short term, and it is and I mean it was clear that this would be complicated, um, but I think that to some some degree, um, yeah, it is it is simply it will take a, a bigger effort, uh, more political momentum uh, to to really fix this because at the moment we simply see that in many ways it is not working as intended, and Russia is getting. A lot of things that it shouldn't be getting um, through third countries, particularly China. So, so this would be um, my summary. And then, I mean, we can discuss several, 
goals or you know what we want to achieve with sanctions i mean um we want to um basically create a situation in which russia doesn't have enough foreign exchange revenues this is the whole idea behind the um the oil embargo and we could also think about maybe mechanisms this is a bit unconventional maybe um how we can uh, enable currency flows out of russia so how do we make sure that um that you know we not only limit the dollars going into russia but that we make you know as many dollars go flow out of russia as possible and you know there are sometimes sanctions are also contradictory because from our perspective i mean from an economic perspective it, it is not a problem if um you know if a russian spends all this money on western luxury goods it's actually maybe a good thing because then the dollars are gone from russia and they can spend it on other things and maybe luxury goods are not as helpful for the war but at the same time of course we know that it has a sort of symbolic meaning and that for other reasons we might not want that but we can also think about you know tinkering a bit with sanctions and you know in this regard but overall i think that we have to be prepared for this to be a very long battle um also um in on the economic field and uh, it is not getting easier because there's always a new circumvention mechanism and the economic incentives are really strong for circumvention and we are basically building something that goes against all economic incentives and this is much harder than let's say creates free trade in the world you know which is aligned with economic incentives it's much harder to sort of um cut trade relations if you have out of all of these links between russia and other countries at the same time well thank you very much also for for kind of uh, summing up the the conversation that's not always you know a, a particularly pleasant conclusion but i think it's a necessary reality check sometimes for where we are and it aligns with you know the conclusions that we at uh, kc institute also reached which is that sanctions are working but they have not brought Russia to any kind of real tipping point where it really is forced to uh, adjust its uh, its foreign policy and stop its its war of aggression in Ukraine. Well, thank you, Giannis, for, for the really enlightening conversations. I think your, your comments have significantly broadened our understanding of what is happening to global trade since the start of the full-scale invasion and since the imposition of uh, sanctions. Uh, to our listeners, thank you for your time and for your uh, interest. Uh, I hope that today's discussion has offered you uh, some fresh perspective. It has certainly given me uh, a lot to think about. Uh, if you found this episode informative and would like to continue exploring these uh, critical economic and political issues with us, I encourage you to sign up so you don't miss any of our content. For updates, do follow us on Twitter at uh, KSC Institute. We also have an exciting lineup of guests and topics in the pipeline for you in the coming months. Thank you once again for being part of this uh, enlightening journey. Uh, this is Benjamin Hildesak saying until next time. <laughs>